What makes a person great? What makes a person great? Last month, you may have noticed Queen Elizabeth II passed away. And it seemed like all over the world, people took a pause out of their lives to express, you know, eulogies and kind things in her honor, expressing the impact she'd had in their life. And so I kind of got sucked into that and was reading all these, you know, speeches and, and everything. And one really jumped out to me. It was the speech given by the former prime minister, Boris Johnson, at, uh, at Parliament and stood up there with this, this note page and he just went through extolling the virtues of Elizabeth. And really the thing that I think struck me the most is the way he said that she really embodied the values of her kingdom. He, he pointed to four or five of them that struck me as, as pretty significant. One, he said, she was indomitable, which means that she was not able to be dominated or defeated. He talked about her sense of humor. She's always cutting a joke, even when she was the one who was the butt of the joke. She was making jokes. She had an incredible work ethic, even until she was 96 years old, receiving people at her Scottish castle, seeing Boris Johnson out as prime minister and the new prime minister in, like three days before she passed away. Talking about her sense of history, that she knew in the moment the things that were going to leave a lasting mark. But he said this, he said, most of all, he recognized in her humility. Queen Elizabeth had reigned for 70 years, not as a cruel tyrant, but as a humble servant. And everybody recognized that in her and loved her for it. And so Boris Johnson there called her Elizabeth the Great. That's high praise, to be called Elizabeth the Great. I don't know if anybody will ever call me Brad the Great. <laughs> Brad the Fool, maybe. But regardless, to receive that kind of praise from someone is amazing. And you think about her legacy and her leadership, and it's obvious why she stands out in our time and why for hundreds of years people will look back through the pages of history to see Queen Elizabeth the Great of England. I mean, it's rare to find a leader who's known for his or her humility. You know, maybe you've experienced this where you've worked for someone who gets a little bit of power and it goes to their head. And they start bossing people around and they start carrying themselves differently. They start dressing differently and maybe they get a nice little pinky ring to show everybody they're the boss, you know? You've seen people like this. A little power goes a long way in helping us think highly of ourselves. But not Elizabeth. Elizabeth had maybe more power than anyone on earth could imagine and yet she was known for her humility. She provides a corrective and a counterbalance to the self-seeking politicians of our day. And I think she does that because she points beyond herself to another king who leads his people through humility and sacrifice. And of course, I'm talking about Jesus, who came to save his people and establish his kingdom, not using the mechanisms of worldly power, but through the humble sacrifice of his death on the cross. And that's really at the heart of the passage Joe just read for us. This leadership concept, this way of being in the world. Jesus, the sacrificial, humble, suffering servant. And yet Jesus' perspective on things stands out and in opposition to that of his disciples. 
They hadn't quite learned everything that he wanted to teach. So he continues this process that he's begun back in chapter 8 of re-educating and recalibrating his disciples to what's real and true. See, they were, they're like us. They've got these values and attitudes that they've sort of adopted along the way and that stand in total opposition to the thing God wants to do through them. Jesus has hand-selected them, and he's given them authority to preach and to cast out demons, but their own attitudes and value systems are standing in the way of the impact they'll have. They're still thinking about what makes a person great. And so this morning, I want to work through this passage and expose two of these attitudes, two of these values that have to be replaced by something else. And in doing so, I hope you see this morning that the greatness of the kingdom is not marked by what you can do or what you've done in the past or how much money's in your bank account or what kind of car you drive or what title's on your business card. That true kingdom greatness is revealed in sacrificial service. So let's work through it. We're here in Mark chapter 9, continuing the story. If you've been with us these past few weeks, you know we've seen some pretty incredible stuff. Jesus has been on the mountaintop, and he was transfigured before Peter, James, and John so that his divine glory shone through the thin veneer of his humanity. And then he comes down the mountain, and last week we saw him engaging in spiritual warfare, casting out a demon that the disciples proved powerless to defeat. And he left from there. Mark tells us that he went through Galilee. Jesus has sort of turned a corner in his ministry. Instead of doing ministry for the crowds, he's focusing on his disciples, and he's headed towards Jerusalem, where he knows he's going to be killed. This is what he tells his disciples. He says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's been killed, he'll rise three days later. If you've been around the church a long time, you know that this prediction Jesus gives here comes true. But... The disciples were still grappling with this information. This is what scholars call a passion prediction. He's predicting the suffering that's going to come. And it's the second of three passion predictions Jesus gives in this section. He gives the first one in Mark 8, 31, when he tells the disciples that he's going to be killed, and Peter says, Lord, no way will we ever let this happen to you. And he says, get behind me, Satan. And then we have the second one here in Mark chapter 9, and then the third one's over in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And in each one of these passion predictions, the disciples' frame of reference and worldly values causes them to respond to him with foolish objections and incomprehension. I mean, of course, Peter says, we'll never let this happen to you. In this passage, the disciples are so confused, they don't even ask him any clarifying questions and then start debating about what greatness is. And in the third one, James and John come to Jesus and ask if they can sit on the right hand and left hand of his throne and his kingdom. So they just completely are confused. They, they have no clue what he's talking about. And I think the reason is, is that they were men of their age. And because of that, they had adopted this value system, which made the suffering Jesus was talking about totally incomprehensible. Scholars tell us the literature of Jesus' day was filled with Jewish expectations for the coming Messiah. And virtually all of them looked the same. They all expected the Messiah to show up to be a strong and wise military leader who was going to command his armies and lead them into battle in Jerusalem, overthrowing the Romans and expelling them from the holy city and setting up his throne, the throne of David, right there in the temple. 
Disciples believed that, and they had seen enough about Jesus along the way, seeing his miracles and hearing his teaching, to maybe begin to hope that he was the fulfillment of all their hopes and dreams, that he was this Messiah. And as soon as they got to Jerusalem, they weren't going to be suffering and death. There was going to be power and glory, pomp and circumstance. It's going to be an incredible victory, and Jesus was going to rule and reign forever, and there they'd be with him on his right hand and on his left. They had no place for suffering in their conception of the Messiah's kingdom. But Jesus won't leave it alone. He keeps bringing it up. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed and delivered into the hands of men and killed and afterwards going to rise again. And you just got to wonder what's going through their head. How are they going to fit this persistent claim that he's going to die into their value structure and worldview? In this case, I love it. If you don't have anything good to say, keep your mouth shut. That's what my mom always told me, and that's what they do in verse 32. They've asked Jesus for clarification over and over and over again when things are hard to understand. But this time, they've learned enough to know that what Jesus is talking about is real. They don't want to know anymore. Let's claim ignorance. So what I love about these passion predictions is how specific they are. Maybe you noticed that he says three things. The Son of Man, which that's Jesus' favorite title for himself, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. This is technical language for personal betrayal, like we'll see later when Judas betrays Jesus to the Jewish authorities for 30 pieces of silver. He says when he's been handed over, they're going to kill him. But after they kill him, he's going to rise again. Love it. There's really nothing there to chance. Of course, there are some details that are going to come out later in the story, but Jesus gives the basic plot to the Passion Week in detail, which tells us that when he ends up dying, he's not the helpless victim of some kind of great tragedy, but he's a willing participant in all that God intends to do through him. His predictions aren't hunches. They're not wise interpretations of the situations of the day. It's not like he can see the consequences of where things are going. He knows, and he's warning his disciples, that he's going to be killed. See, I think that Jesus had spent enough time in the Scriptures, and enough time praying over them. They needed him to see exactly what his Father was asking him to do, that Jesus had come to be the ruling Messiah, yes, but to establish his kingdom in a really unexpected way, that he was going to fulfill the role of Isaiah's suffering servant. If you got a copy of the Followers 5, I think one day this week, I encourage you to read Isaiah 53 and process it. Um, it's beautiful. It's a prediction given about Jesus several hundred years before he was born, and it describes his life to a T. Isaiah says that he appeared to his people, and his people saw nothing in him that was worthy of respect. No, no majesty or form that they should notice him. You think about Jesus, I mean, he didn't fit their value structure. But what God was doing in him was incredible. He says that he'd come to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. And he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And the chastisements that brought us peace were upon him, and by his stripes were healed. That Jesus had come to do something that flew in the face of every expectation that the disciples could muster. They've been so shaped by the value system and worldview of their world that his warnings 
went in one ear and out the other. And they couldn't comprehend how his mission could end in suffering rather than glory. So this is the first value that Jesus has to expose and re-educate them over. Suffering was incomprehensible. And I think about us, you know, if you think about your value system, your worldview, the lenses through which you view the world, do you have space for suffering in that? A sociologist named Christian Smith undertook a study in 2005 of 3,000 Christian teenagers. He wanted to understand what they believed. And so that's my generation. I graduated high school in 2007. It's crazy to believe that 2005 was 17 years ago. Okay, it's a long time ago to me. Maybe it seems relatively recent to you. I was a snot-nosed sophomore in 2005. Okay, but he does this study of 3,000 teenagers trying to expose their religious beliefs. And he came back with five tenets. And he calls these five tenets a religion called moral therapeutic deism. This is what those teenagers believe. That's what people my age believe. They believe, number one, that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. They believe this God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and other world religions. They believe, number three, that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to solve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. That's a value system. That's a worldview. That's a lens through which these people see things. I wonder how well those things map onto your theology, your personal beliefs about God and about the world. How well do those fit? Did anything rub you the wrong way? Did you notice maybe anything missing? I, I read them, and I'm like, well, where's the concept of sin? I get that God wants people to be good, but what's the opposite of good? And where's the cross? And where's salvation? And where's repentance? And where's change? And yet, this is the dominant frame of reference most people bring to spirituality. That there's a God somewhere out there who wants people to get along with each other, and he's going to reward you if you do right. And if you need him, call him, but hey, otherwise it's all right. And I don't mean to disparage the belief system of any person or any generation or any society, but moral therapeutic deism is not biblical Christianity. That's not what Jesus came to preach. I mean, the Bible teaches us that God has much bigger plans for you and me than our happiness. If he just wanted us to be happy, he could you know, hook us up to some kind of God machine that just pumped happiness into our veins. Leave us sinful and wicked and terrible parents and awful husbands and wives and terrible employees and bosses, but we, at least we'd be happy. You know, a lot of people would settle for that, but the Bible says he has bigger plans for us than that. It tells us that before time began, God set his love, especially on his people, that he saw through all the mists of time to see each person that he would adopt into his family. And he purposed within himself to do whatever it took to bring them to himself, even if that meant sending his own son to die in their place. And so God created this world, a perfect place for people, where we could enjoy personal fellowship with him every day and every night, having all that we needed supplied directly from him. 
and yet people rebelled against God. The Bible calls that rebellion sin, rejected his commandments, and decided to go their own way. But when the time was right, he sent his son Jesus to the earth to live a sinless life and to save those wicked people from their sins. So that if anybody would trust in his death on the cross, they'd be saved and forgiven of their sins and adopted into God's family. And that he raised Jesus up again and gave him a place of honor in heaven so that whoever trusts in him will live with him forever. And then, as each of us are born in the special time and place that God has predetermined, he sends his Holy Spirit into our lives to reorchestrate and re-engineer everything about us to get us right to the place where God can speak directly to us and say, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the Holy Spirit works through the mud and the muck of our lives and draws us closer and closer to Jesus until we believe in our heart of hearts, not that Jesus came to save sinners, but that he came to save us. And the Holy Spirit grants us faith and unites us to Christ so that everything that's true of him is true of us, so that even now we're seated with him in heavenly places and that we have received the seal of the Holy Spirit so that when God sees us, he sees his mark on us. And day by day, despite our best efforts to run away from God as fast as we can, the Holy Spirit keeps us chained to Jesus so that day by day, moment by moment, we grow from one degree of glory to the next as he works out his purpose to conform us to the image of his Son until the work he began in us is complete. That is God's plan for you. Now, you might wish he'd just make you happy, but he wants to make you like Jesus. And I think that's far better than that. And so because that's God's plan, we have to rework our value system. A value system which says, suffering's incomprehensible. If God loved me, why would he let bad things happen to me? Well, he tells you, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God says, everything that happens in your life that you wish I'd remove, I'm turning for your good. I'm going to work it all out so that it accomplishes my purpose in you. Like Peter says in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the res at also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Listen, I don't know how you think about the troubles of your life, how you've tried to process those things that you wish had never happened to you, how all the suffering that you've experienced fits into God's plan, but let me just tell you, they're not signs that God's displeased with you. They're signs that God's at work in you to change you and reshape you into the image of Jesus. And today, he's brought you here so that your value system, which finds suffering incomprehensible, could be overlaid with his perfect plan. That the God who loves you and who saved you in Jesus is working in you to conform you into his image. So that's the first value that Jesus had to expose. If the disciples were going to learn who he was and were going to carry out his mission in the world, they had to get rid of that. No place for this. You've got to understand how I use suffering. But there's another one. See, the disciples had no response to Jesus' warning about his coming death, and so they just sort of follow along behind him until they finally make it to Capernaum and go inside the house. And I think that's probably the house of Peter and Andrew where they've spent so much time in Capernaum. 
And when they get inside, Jesus sits down in his chair, and he invites all his guys around them, and he says, So guys, tell me, what were you talking about on the way? And doesn't it make you cringe as you see it? I don't know. Look, look back here, verse 33. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. That's uncomfortable. You imagine them all like staring at their feet. You know, Peter, you're going to have to answer, man. You're the spokesperson. We elected you at our business meeting, you know, whatever. They're all trying to avoid eye contact with the teacher, but he knows in their hearts. He could hear it over his shoulder. He knew what they were talking about, and he was calling them to the floor. Give an account for yourself. But they couldn't say anything. They had acted so shamefully. How do you tell your teacher that you were debating which of his disciples was the best? And you got to wonder what prompted that discussion to begin with. I mean, I think maybe the nine who'd been left by Jesus at the foot of the mountain when Peter, James, and John had gone with him up to the top were probably asking Peter, James, and John, okay, so why did the teacher choose you guys to go up on the mountain? What's so special about you? And anyway, what were y'all doing up there? To which you got to believe, Peter, James, and John just says, hey, you know, it was incredible, but he said not to say anything. And they sort of rub it in that they were privileged. Or maybe it's Peter, James, and John giving the nine a hard time. Hey, if we'd have been there, we could have cast out the demon. You guys are so idiotic. Don't you know that you got to pray to get demons out of people? And so maybe they were debating with each other all these things, implying that one was better than the other. But in any case, what ends up happening is that Jesus had just told them he was going to die, and they leave him to walk alone up in front while they're sort of like jockeying for position in the back. It's shameful that that's what the disciples would choose to debate. And the word that they use, who's the greatest, is really pregnant with all kind of meaning. Because greatest in what? The greatest in what? The word greatest is simply a word of comparison used to rank things, which is lesser and which is greater. It can be used to talk about something that's great in importance or great in worth, so that it would be who's the most important or who's the most valuable or who's the most distinguished, who's the most illustrious, who's the most powerful. Those are the things they're debating. Who's the greatest? I love the way Jesus sort of just brings it to a fine point. Whoever wants to be first, first. I don't know, apparently, these disciples were thinking ahead. They started to get the picture that Jesus' ministry was going to change. And this traveling from place to place, teaching crowds, was going to be replaced with a sort of stationary ministry. And they were thinking, of course, it was going to be on the throne. And so they were wondering, who was top of their class? Who was next in line for that position of honor? Who was going to carry on Jesus' ministry when he stepped into this new phase. And the debate proved that none of them were. That none of them had gotten it. None of them had understood any way of Jesus in the world. They hadn't understood the humility. They hadn't understood the sacrifice. They hadn't understood the other-centeredness that drove Jesus' life. Their desires, their ambitions, their priorities were incompatible with Jesus' way of working. And so 
He called them in, called them to the carpet to re-educate and recalibrate. See, he knew probably better than me and you that their culture had uh, taught them to, to prize their reputation and the way people thought about them. Jesus is all the time having to correct this attitude. He says in Luke chapter 20, Don't be like the scribes who like to walk around in log robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. In another place, he says, Hey, if somebody invites you to the party, don't take the seat at the head of the table because maybe somebody else will show up who's more important than you and you'll have to be asked to move to the end of the table. Instead, just sit at the end and maybe the, guest, the host will see you and invite you up to the front. Now, Jesus is trying to help them understand it because he knew that their value system was incompatible. That service was incompatible with greatness. And so Jesus says them straight. You guys know nothing. You know nothing at all. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. I think this is the great paradox of greatness in God's kingdom. That's why it's hidden, because it's not obvious at the surface level. Our, our way of working, the way we work in the world, is to achieve levels of success to where people recognize in us our greatness. And we, we symbolize them with different status symbols. For some people, it's a certain kind of car or a truck with the perfect size tires and exhaust. For other people, it's a corner office and the nameplate on the desk. For other people, it's a numbers of followers on Instagram and on TikTok so that you can be an influencer. You know, that's the, the number. When you were a kid, I bet you wanted to be an astronaut or a firefighter or a policeman or a ballerina or a gymnast or a nurse or a doctor or a lawyer. You know, kids today want to be YouTubers. That's real. They want to be influencers and YouTubers. Do you know what that is? A YouTuber? You look it up. Maybe it's followers on Instagram or TikTok or money in the bank or the public perception that you're a perfect mom or dad or husband or wife or that you've got the perfect home and set up. Whatever it is, we are built to want to be great in the eyes of others, to show that greatness through status symbols. But according to Jesus, the person who's really great is the person who willingly takes the last place and becomes a servant. This Greek word for servant is diakonos, from which we get our word deacon. And it literally means to be an assistant or a helper. What kind of leader willingly gives up their position of leadership to be a helper? Isn't it the case that you try to get to that place where you tell other people what to do instead of having to do it yourself? That's success. That's greatness. But according to Jesus, great people don't boss other people around or walk in with an air of superiority, like, hey, I'm finally here, folks. They take off their outer cloak and wrap a towel around their waist, and they wash their feet. They lay down their life for their friends. They serve. Disciples had no way of bringing that into their value system. It was offensive. And Jesus drives the point home by grabbing a little kid and standing him up in the middle. 
He says, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. And I think I've always thought about, Jesus has a lot to say about children. Um, they show up everywhere in his ministry. Later, the disciples are going to turn people away from bringing children to Jesus because they think he's too busy and too important to deal with these kids. And Jesus rebukes them and says, no, let the children come to me. And so I always thought, like, in these passages that the special thing about children was that they were children. You know, like, they're cute and innocent and remind us of what we were before we got all cynical and jaded because of the world. But I actually don't think that's why Jesus pulled this kid into the mix here. In the ancient world, um, they didn't think about children as little precious angels. They were the lowest of the low on the ladder of social status. Children had no rights. They belonged to their parents. They weren't responsible, so they couldn't do anything on their own. Even from a Jewish perspective, they weren't considered people of the covenant yet because they weren't morally capable of keeping the law. And so they were just kind of cast to the side. I mean, maybe lovingly cast to the side. They gave them the equivalent of the first century iPad and said, hey, go get out of my way and do something important while I do stuff important. But in any case, Jesus pulls this kid in because the kid stands in stark opposition to everything the disciples value. The kid is the lowest of the low. And the disciples think they are the best of the best. And so Jesus challenges this attitude of self-importance to say that, hey, look, what matters about you? You want to be great? You want to be first in my kingdom? You want to prove to me that you've passed the test? You want to show that you're ready for the next level of ministry? It's not how many demons you can cast out. It's not how many sermons you can preach. It's not how many people are in your church. What really impresses me is the way you welcome the lowest of the low. The people who can't give you the kind of honor you so desperately crave. The people who don't have the finances to support you. The lowest of the low. This is one of the most basic ethical principles of the kingdom, and I, I bet you probably are already thinking of the passage we're going to read here in Matthew 25. Jesus even says that the way you treat the least of these determines whether or not you enter into his kingdom. He says in Matthew 25, 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He'll sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He'll separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He'll put the sheep on His right, and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least, you did it to me. For Jesus, that's greatness. That's what he's looking for in his disciples. That's what he's looking for in you and me. I mean, just think about his life. 
Think about the way he operated, the kind of people he pursued and interacted with. Jesus cleansed lepers, the very people society rejected and said, hey, stay away as far as you can. Jesus interacted with tax collectors and sinners, disreputable people. That was the way he operated. Would it surprise you to find out that he expects the same from us? That the Messiah himself stooped so low. Would we think to be so pretentious that we wouldn't engage with the lowliest of the low? See, I think our value system is just as wrong as the disciples. You and I are in danger of letting the way the world thinks infect our view of Christ's kingdom. And that's why we need to hear these passages, like Jeremiah 9. Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I'm the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things. We need to remember who we are. Like Paul tells the Corinthians, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of y'all were wise according to the flesh. Not many were mighty nor noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. The meaning of that passage came home to me in 2015 when I was serving on staff at a church in the Woodlands, Texas, and I thought pretty highly of myself. I've just believed in my heart of hearts that I was God's greatest gift to the church. And I was wrapping up seminary, and I was ready to go and make my mark in the world. But I had this class called Pastoral Ministry. And one of the assignments was that I had to go on a hospital visit. And so we had a lady in our church who was legally blind and completely widowed, had no family, and was in a nursing home in Tomball. So one day I got up ready to complete my assignment and to do God's work, blessing Miss Fran. And so I drove over to Tomball and got to the nursing home and went inside and wasn't really prepared for the lesson God taught me. Okay, I was, first off, overwhelmed by the nursing home itself. Nursing homes are terrible places. I know that people have to go there sometimes. Man, they are so sad. So first off, I start to lose my confidence because I'm shaken by the environment I'm in. And then I go into the room, ready to find Miss Fran miserable and ready to be uplifted. And she's the happiest person I'd ever met. Starts telling me about all her doctors and about all the people in the nursing home that she's been talking to about Jesus. And she really starts to put me to shame. I used to come in there thinking I'm the one here to do God's work. And I realize almost immediately that she was doing God's work for me, that she was showing me my value system. And so I shared the verse that I'd prepared to share. And I took her hand and asked how I could pray for her. And as I started to pray, I was just overcome with emotion. And I got through it and told her I'd see her later. I went out to my car and just broke down. And God reminded me of this verse. 
God uses the weak things to shame the strong. See, my, my view of greatness up to that point, to be honest with you, included doing this right here. Now, if only I could get to be the senior pastor of a church and preach every Sunday, man, then I could unleash the potential that's locked up inside of me. It's like God reminded me, it's like, hey, you know what? What matters most is not what's on your resume or the degrees you completed or the sermons you preach, the things you've done. Are you humble enough to serve wherever I call you? Wherever I place you, are you willing to love the people around you? And i got to be honest, if I had have answered that question that day, I would have said no. I'm above this stuff. I'm ready to do the stuff that matters. But y'all, God's not looking for strong people. He's not looking for wise people. He's not looking for rich people to use in his kingdom. The people God is looking for are people who've been transformed by the radical, life-changing, sacrificial love of Jesus so that everywhere they go, they're willing to sacrificially serve others. That's why I love the way Pastor Jerry is teaching our kids this morning this same passage. He says it like this. Jesus teaches us to put others first because Jesus put us first. I think it's what people saw in Queen Elizabeth. They saw that kind of humility and service in her. And I wonder, do people see that in you? Do they see that kind of sacrificial service? Do they see the greatness of the kingdom, which is revealed in sacrificial service in you? As we close this morning, I would just challenge you to ask yourself whether or not God has challenged your value system. Has he exposed for you this morning Maybe the incompatibility of suffering for the way you've planned out your life. Maybe he's trying to show you that he's got bigger plans for you than your happiness. I wonder, has he brought somebody to mind today? Somebody that you can serve. You can go out of your way to do what Jesus tells us to do. To become last in a servant. Why don't you swallow your pride? Why don't you pick up the phone? Why don't you go knock on the door? And serve. I wonder this morning, has the Holy Spirit worked on you? Has he persuaded you? Are you wondering about Jesus? Whether or not it could be true that Jesus would come for somebody like you, to love you. If so, I'd love to talk with you about that. I'd love to help you figure out what it's going to mean to follow Jesus in your life. Church, will you pray with me?